listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. I've got to tell you that uh, when Beth and Scott arrived and uh, sort, we began to sort out who was going to read which of those readings, I pointed to the Zephaniah one and I said, happy reading? And I pointed to the Luke one and I said, tough reading? And Beth wanted to arm wrestle for the right to read the tough one because <laughs> she wanted to say, you brood of vipers. This is what John said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Now, I think it's more than safe to say that John the Baptist never read Dale Carnegie's famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Even if somehow an edition were to be published in Aramaic, transported across time 2,000 years, and landed in the hands of John on the banks of the River Jordan, I think it's fair to say that he would have been singularly unimpressed. The first of what Dale Carnegie calls fundamental techniques in handling people was, wait for it, Don't criticize, condemn, or complain, you brood of vipers. And at the top of Carnegie's advice to leaders on how to change people without giving offense or arousing resentment was, begin with praise and honest appreciation. Right. Well, John couldn't have cared less about such things. John wasn't setting out to be a successful leader, nor was he looking to cultivate a wide circle of friends. John understood his calling to be that of a prophet, and as as was true of a good many of the prophets of old, and I think here particularly of Jeremiah and Amos, it didn't seem to much matter to John if he offended people. I was listening the other day to a really fine interview with Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth, in which Rabbi Sachs commented that one of the important roles of a religious leader is to challenge, to challenge the members of his or her own tradition. The rabbi went on to say that such work is by no means guaranteed of success. And he pointed to the Hebrew prophets, whose deep and challenging messages tended to go unheeded by their own people. The singularly most successful prophetic message is actually uttered by the character of Jonah, who speaks but one sentence. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And it actually turns Nineveh around. Now, the great joke of the book of Jonah, of course, is that the Ninevites are Gentiles, enemies, in fact. 
While Jonah, the lone Jewish character in the story, is the most half-hearted and sulky prophet in the whole of the Bible. Mostly, you see, the prophets of the tradition aren't much listened to, not by their own. And even if they are heard, the response of the people is often either hostile, as when they toss poor Jeremiah into an empty cistern and he sinks in the, in the wet mud, or the response of the people is rather less than transformed. It seems to be the frustration that John the Baptist is facing here. You see, people are coming out to him to receive his baptism of repentance, which means, you know, baptism signifying a fundamental turn in life. But he's not seeing them bear any fruit, like it doesn't seem to be changing anything. Not seeing them put their so-called repentance into action by actually living differently, which is why he calls them a brood of vipers. The unsuccess of the prophetic calling never stopped the prophets. Not that they didn't get discouraged, mind you. That does come through in various places in the Old Testament as well as in the story of the Baptist himself. There will come this point several chapters down the line after Herod has imprisoned John that John will begin to wonder if perhaps he'd been wrong in pointing to Jesus as the one more powerful than I, the one who is coming, the one who will baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire. See, John wasn't seeing Jesus burning up any chaff in the unquenchable fire. He wasn't seeing a winnowing fork in the ministry of Jesus. Maybe he'd been wrong. Most, if not all, of the prophets of old had pushed past their own misgivings, their own doubts, the failure of their words to change anything. They pushed past that because when things did come crashing down, as they said it would, they found new voices and they began to sing new songs. That's so true, for instance, of the prophet Isaiah whose words come up again and again and again over the church year, but particularly around Advent and Christmas time. Isaiah witnesses the complete collapse of the nation. And then he begins to sing, swords being pounded into plowshares. The lamb and the lion shall lie down together. It's also true of the prophet Zephaniah, whose words we heard read aloud this evening. Scott got the cheerful words. Zephaniah's words are full of light and hope. But we only heard the closing poem or closing oracle of Zephaniah. Anyone who still imagines, of course, that the Old Testament is all judgment, it's all law, it's all harsh and stern... For anyone who still thinks that, these words of Zephaniah are a kind of a tonic. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. No more fear, no more disaster. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. 
I will change their shame into praise. It's a very potent line, right? Because shame so cripples people. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all of the earth. At that time, I will bring you home. Yet everything that had preceded this bold, hope-filled song in Zephaniah had been rather more challenging, unsettling, and troubling. Zephaniah writes during the rule of King Josiah, Israel's reforming king, whose reign comes not all that long before Babylon will roll through with its military machine and flatten Jerusalem. As Anne Stewart notes in her commentary on this passage from Zephaniah, in the context of King Josiah's reign, God's presence is disturbing. It upsets the complacencies and faithless habits of the people. It undermines hypocrisy and indifference. God's presence will surprise those who assume that God is a benign indifferent deity who is of little consequence to the reality of daily life. Zephaniah's voice through the opening oracles or poems of his short book rattles and shakes and presses and undermines complacency, and it does it hard. For two and a half chapters, Zephaniah's voice is tough-edged and hard-nosed. Then, and only then, does this other voice emerge. Deep in its bones, deep, deep in its bones, Israel carried its stories of being saved, a saved, restored, chosen people, entrusted to a faithful, gracious, and liberating God. It tells the story of being freed from slavery in Egypt and then being carried step by step, year by year, through that long sojourn in the Sinai Desert and finally into the land of promise. Zephaniah knows that story. That's why he can sing hopefully. But that story is repeated or echoed in the story that will follow later, the story of being released from captivity in Babylon and allowed to return home and to rebuild. It's echoed again in the stories from the Old Testament Apocrypha, the books between the Old and New Testament, stories that tell of being liberated from the grip of the Seleucid Empire of Alexander the Great, a liberation that's celebrated in the eight-day Jewish festival of Hanukkah, the final day of which is actually being marked in Jewish homes tomorrow. These are, one after another after another, remarkable and impossible stories. Impossible, at least, by any logical, reasonable human standards, which is why prophets like Isaiah and Zephaniah write poetic words that sing, which is why Advent is a season for poetry, for courageous imagery, and for singing. The hope this season of Advent speaks 
cuts against the falling dark. And it does it not in some trite or merely sentimental way, but in a deeply, the deeply hopeful way of these ancient prophets. Advent hopefulness holds its hands open, praying that Christ will not only be with us now, but will, in the fullness of time, return to bring the whole works home. Still, what do we do? What do we make of John the Baptist's fiery images of the winnowing fork, of chaff being burnt in the unquenchable fire? Was he, as he himself wondered, wrong? No, no, but maybe he was saying more than he even knew. If you were here last Sunday, you'll have heard the imagery of the refining fire from the prophet Malachi, fire that cleanses. It's something picked up on by the Scottish pastor, theological writer, and novelist, George MacDonald, a man whom C.S. Lewis claimed had baptized his imagination. If you know Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, and you remember when the protagonist moves into this sort of land that is the entrance to heaven and he's met by this old Scottish pastor, that's George MacDonald. When we say that God is love, MacDonald preached, Do we teach men that their fear of him is groundless? In other words, if we preach grace and mercy and forgiveness and the love of God in a thoroughgoing way, are we basically saying, oh, relax, God is far too nice to be troubled by your messy life? No, MacDonald continues, no, the wrath will consume what they call themselves so that the selves God made shall appear. Hear that? The wrath consumes the selves we call ourselves so that the true self that God created will appear. They will know that now first are they fully themselves. The avarice, weary, selfish, suspicious old man shall have passed away. The young, ever young self will remain. That which they thought themselves shall have vanished. That which they felt themselves, though they misjudged their own feelings, shall remain. Remain glorified in repentant hope. The death that is in them shall be consumed. So no, John the Baptist was not wrong in choosing his strong words, his fiery images. There is a kind of a burning. John just couldn't see the cross, couldn't begin to imagine the cross and the undoing of the power of death. And it is on that very cross that our deepest Advent hope finally rests. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.